The Natural Man podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only. It should not be construed as medical advice or a diagnosis of any kind, or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of the Natural Man Podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Natural Man Podcast. This is the Natural Man Podcast. Welcome to it. This is the Natural Man Podcast. I am your host, Mike C. This is an exploration into health, wellness, and discovering new ways to improve one's vitality. And today, we're very excited because uh, we have a very well-established physician who will be joining us. He has a thriving practice in New York City, and we are grateful that he's taken time out of his busy schedule to be with us today on the podcast. He is a pioneer in the emerging field of integrative cardiology. He's board certified in cardiology with over 30 years of experience. He's had advanced training in mind-body medicine at the University of Massachusetts and Harvard Medical School. He's also trained at the Institute for Functional Medicine, where he studied clinical nutrition, preventing, managing, and reversing cardiovascular and metabolic dysfunction, hormone balance, immunology, detoxification, among others, and he applies these principles in his clinical practice. He is also a clinical instructor at the Department of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. Please welcome Dr. Howard Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Great to be here, Mike. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. You have a very impressive resume, so uh, we're excited to have you on, and I want to dive into so many different things. But let's start with how you got into integrative cardiology. Um, I know you had previously shared with me um, that patients of yours were struggling to manage chronic stress, and that caused you to sort of go down this path of a more preventative approach in your practice. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it actually started with... um... You know, the, the understanding of the importance of chronic stress kind of came later down, down the line. But, you know, what I was finding is, um, you know, starting out in my career as a cardiologist, um, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, coming into the hospital to see patients that were um, uh, having a heart attack or a stroke. And my job would be to... Um, you know, identify what was going on and, and do um, whatever uh, measures were necessary to stabilize them and to eventually hopefully get them out of the, the hospital in good condition. I would then um, routinely see such patients um, a week, two weeks later in the office and um, and and the uh, you know main focus is, is really to prevent uh, future events from, from arising, prevent them from coming to the hospital again, having future heart attacks or strokes. 
And um, so that's preventive measures, preventive cardiology. And, um, and um, you know, what I found is that, um, well, firstly, the foundation for preventing cardiovascular disease or any other disease for that matter is, uh, is lifestyle measures, is um, eating properly, exercising, reducing stress, sleeping well. And, um, and, and you know, a lot of these behaviors are in one's control. One chooses whether to have a, uh, a cheeseburger or to have a nice healthy salad or to lie down and uh, watch television all night and, and, uh, and be inactive versus, you know, getting up and going to the gym. So these are choices one makes in, in lifestyle. And um, what I found is that people clearly understood that they should um, uh, adapt a healthy lifestyle, that they should stop smoking, eat, eat healthy, be active, reduce stress, etc. Um, but uh, an overwhelming majority of them, although they completely understood what they should do, actually doing it was very challenging uh, for these patients. And so, um, you know, again, I would spend time explaining to them, educating them, counseling them, and they understood, but they would, would uh, you know, uh, revert back to their, their uh, old unhealthy habits. And so the uh, exploration, you know, uh, eventually led me to the understanding that chronic stress played a very uh, critical role in why it was so challenging for them to do the things that they knew that they should do, but they were, were not unable to actually uh, execute on it. Right. And, you know, you hit on something interesting, and that is that um, people need to make these lifestyle changes and sometimes I think for functional medicine doctors like yourself, that can be one of the biggest hurdles in getting a patient to a better state of overall health. Do you find that's challenging with your patients? Yeah, well, it certainly is challenging. And, and really, you know, it depends on the individual you're, you're working with um, uh, and, uh, you know, whether... Uh, how, how motivated they are, and uh, you know, it's just some, some people can um, make the changes more easily than than others. But I, I think uh, what's really uh, another uh, very important um, uh, uh, body of knowledge, you know, in addition to understanding the the role of, of chronic stress in um, in in disease occurrence. Is the is the idea of uh, of understanding the um, uh, one's readiness to change, and some people just are not ready to change, and uh, so you have to, you know, um, they're not going to change if they're not ready to change. So how do you um, how do you work with them? How do you meet them where they are? and to eventually help them get to that point of, of being ready to, ready to change. And so that becomes critically important also. If you just tell them you should do this and that and this and that, and they, they might even be motivated to do it, um, and they might, but, but it, it may be very short-lived. They'll do it for a week or two, and then they'll, they'll, you know, they'll go back to their old, old ways again. So... Uh, preparing patients in, in a way where they're um, where they're ready to change, they're ready to make the commitment, is very is very important. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as somebody who's, you know, had health issues in my past, sometimes, and I hate saying this, but sometimes it's that near-death experience that really motivates a person to make those changes. Um, you know, our body is filled with alarm systems that tell us when something's wrong. But unfortunately, a lot of us, if not all of us, we wait until we're really sick before anything is changed. And, um, you know, it's hard to get that in people's heads until they have those warning lights going off. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, sometimes the train, the, the events are very dramatic and that might, that really jolts someone and, and, you know, there's no other option for them than to change. But sometimes the warning signs are more, you know, are more subtle, less, less, uh, less dramatic and, um, and, but people are getting these, you know, signals that they, that they should be changing, that they are on the wrong, wrong path. Um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, but actually for those patients to actually make those changes, for instance, you know, typically a patient comes in and has some blood work done and, and there's, you know, it's found that they have, you know, high levels of, of inflammation and a very high cholesterol levels or other, um, abnormal tests. Um, you know, that's just a, a, a test result and, and, uh, uh, and how they respond to that will will vary in terms of how how um, how ready they are to, to where they are on the spectrum of readiness to to make the changes that are necessary. Yeah, definitely. Um, for years now, the conventional medical paradigm has been promoting the low fat diet to prevent heart disease, particularly saturated fat. Um, but you know, there seems to be some emerging research that's challenging that notion, and I'd love to get your opinion on that. What do you think of the low-fat diet as it pertains to heart disease? And in your opinion, is saturated fat bad for us? Yeah, well, I can, you know, tell you by, you know, in terms of how I, how I practice and, uh, uh, and, you know, um, and the literature that 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 I uh, you know review is is uh, is based on uh, uh, basis how I practice, and so I do I do see um, uh, I it is something that I measure in in the patient's blood work. The um, I, I I obtain a uh, a fatty acid profile, which which gives me a clear a, a nice picture of of what the percentage of saturated fats versus uh, uh, healthy fats, you know, polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats that are, that are, um, anti-inflammatory. And, uh, if I see, you know, the levels of saturated fats are, are, are very, are high. I, I do, I do, uh, counsel them to, uh, take measures to, to reduce it. So I do see that as something that is a, is a risk factor, high, high levels of saturated fat. Um, but I base it, I base it off of, uh, uh, diagnostic testing. Okay. Um, and I, I once heard a car, a cardiologist at a lecture talk about calcification of the arteries as a result of aging. And it was his belief that everyone's arteries begin to calcify more as we age and that basically it's unavoidable. Is there any truth to that in your opinion? If somebody's living a healthy lifestyle and they're consciously eating nutritional foods. Does that still 
take place or can we keep our arteries clear if we're doing all the right things and taking all the right measures? Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, having the um, um, healthy lifestyle measures, um, implementing them, and uh, also, um, you know, making sure that your, um, your, you know, your cholesterol levels, your, your blood sugar levels and inflammation markers and all that are, are in the right place definitely, you know, results in a, uh, uh, reducing the risk of, of having, you know, blockages, uh, which is what, what, what calcium is actually, you know, calcium is, you know, um, I think it needs to be put into context, um, what, you know, what the calcium really represents and why we look at calcium. Calcium is, is really, um, you know, just one fact factor in, um, it's something that we could, that could be visualized in radiologic studies. So that's, and it correlates directly with the uh, amount of plaque or the atherosclerotic plaque burden in, in the, in the blood vessels. Um, and it's, um, certainly, you know, as one ages, the likelihood of them having more calcium than, than they had when they were younger would be, would be increased. But, but all these healthy lifestyle measures, um, will, will reduce the, the amount of plaque one, one develops. They will, these healthy lifestyle measures will, um, uh, you know, result in improved endothelial cell function, healthier blood vessels, and and so there will be less less uh, less plaque and therefore less less calcium in the arteries. The whole topic of cal of calcium in the arteries is kind of uh, somewhat somewhat complex, and uh, but I'm happy to you know discuss it further and you know share some other. Um, information and insights into that if you're, if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll have to have another episode if, if you're game, because there's so much to cover here and uh, we just appreciate all the experience and insights that you bring into this because you've been at this game for a while. So uh, we love going to the experts on this podcast. So, so thank you for elaborating Dr. Schwartz. Um, You know, as far as blockages in the arteries, you say, as we get older, typically there's more possibility of that. Do you think there is an age where if somebody's trying to live preventatively, so to speak, is there an age where they should start checking those diagnostics more regularly, like whether it's having scans or, or different lipid tests or, or whatever? Is that something people need to do? Just like, you know, they say the colonoscopy you should do at 50. Should we be doing that with arteries and, and the health of our arteries and blockages for heart health? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the, uh, you know, the, uh, standard guidelines on, on that, you know, when is it, um, you know, indicated to, to get a, uh, imaging study such as that. And that is, um, is when, you know, in medicine, we want to do things that are going to make, make a difference, you know, a difference to be a difference must make a difference. And uh, so if you're going to do a test, you know, is it going to change? Is it going to change what you're going to do? So if someone's in front of me and they have a very high risk profile, um, they're going to need to do certain things. 
regardless of, of what their calcium score, score shows. Um, if someone's a very low risk, has a very low risk profile, and um, it's, you know, in, in those kinds of cases, it, it, I wouldn't think that wouldn't be top on my list to, to get a, a coronary artery calcium scan. When someone's kind of in the middle and, and the, the uh, uh, score on the test will make a difference in how aggressive, you know, your recommendations will be, that's when I would, that's when I lean toward getting the, the uh, you know, the, the, uh, the calcium scan. And so, um, but as far as, um, you know, other, I think, you know, you, you brought, brought up the issue of age and, you know, how early do you want to know? So I, yeah, I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, in my practice, you know, if a patient comes to me and they're young and they're concerned that they, uh, you know, there might be a family history of heart disease or, or they might uh, say they're in their 30s or 40s and, and they're, uh, or, or they're beginning to experience some symptoms that they're concerned about. You know, I, do a, I do a thorough assessment of their, of their risk factors you know, through, you know, through blood work uh, to you know, see how their, um, you know, their, their uh, cardiovascular risk profile is. And because uh, and, it's always better to you know, um, be proactive yeah. You know, rather Definitely. than I, there's a tendency to, as one is young, you know, and when one is young, meaning like in their twenties, thirties, you know, you get away with a lot of stuff. Oh yeah. But, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there's not bad things going on inside while you're getting away with, with the stuff. And so it's, um, it's important to prevent things from happening rather than react to, to things happening. Um, so, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, um, if you're interested in knowing what's going on biologically, um, beyond, you know, beyond the routine tests that you might get from a, um, you know, conventional primary care physician, there's, there's, there are, um, um, various, you know, options to get a, a deeper, deeper look into what's going on biologically and what, what needs, uh, attending to. Okay, so talk a little bit about that. You brought up labs and, and diagnostics, and of course, there's the standard lipid tests and, and those things. What kind of labs do you use? Do you use the mainly conventional labs? Do you dive a little deeper with some other diagnostics? Share some of that with us. Yeah, so if you're looking at a, uh, at a cardiovascular risk profile, um, so beyond the, you know, the, the usual... Um, panel of cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL, those, those are the basic ones. Um, one might want to know um, uh, how many particles of the bad cholesterol there are. One might want to know what the size of the, uh, of the bad cholesterol particles are. Um, because though each of those, the, the, um, the size, if they're if the bad cholesterol, the LDL is is very small, there um, it's a higher risk. The smaller the cholesterol, the smaller the LDL, the easier it's able to get into the wall of the blood vessel and cause cause problems. Um, you want to know how many particles there are. So so when you get a usual L, a bad cholesterol test, it measures the the mass, the volume of of that, but that doesn't tell you that. Uh, so you could have a 
a lot of small particles versus less amount of large particles, and the, the mass will still be the same. But if you have a lot of those, if you have a lot of small particles, that's a higher risk. The more particles there are, the smaller they are. Um, they again, they can get into the blood vessel wall more more easily and cause cause problems. So that's that's um, um, so expanding on on uh, the the type of LDL, the number of particles. There's also a very important marker that I think we're going to hear uh, more and more about. It's called uh, LP little a, and it's a special type of um, of uh, of LDL. That's that. Even if the bad cholesterol, the LDL, is normal, if your LP little a is elevated, you're at an increased, significantly increased risk of, of uh, heart heart disease problems. So, uh, I have a 40 year old son who who just he, asked, he told me he was going to see his primary care doctor. Was there any additional testing that I would recommend? And I said, Yeah, why don't you have him check an LP little a? Because that's uh, my wife has that. My wife has an elevated LP little a, and if uh, and based on that, there's a 50% chance of my children having having that uh, genetic risk as well. So that's an important important test as as well. And then um, uh, additionally, in the cardiovascular risk profile, we get the uh, saturated fat the uh, uh, fatty acid profile to know one's um, levels of healthy fats uh, or anti-inflammatory fats versus inflammatory uh, fats in the blood. So those are some basic cardiovascular risk testing uh, that's done. Also, in addition to that, um, there's tests that can, uh, well, this, this markers of inflammation, which are very, very important. Um, and um, there's markers for, um, for oxidative stress that, that I look at as as well. Um, so um, th those are some of the other you know expanding beyond to, to see to, to see uh, you know get a deeper dive into what's going on um, um, biologically. There's another uh, so, so those tests are you know oxidized. You can get oxidized LDL levels. Um, you can get isoprostane levels, which are uh, measures of oxidative stress. Um, and um, there's also a, a testing that I've been doing lately. It's a ADMA level, and and that's related to um, nitric oxide in 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 the blood. It, uh, nitric oxide is a very important um, antioxidant, and it helps to relax the blood vessels. So it's uh, patients with low nitric oxide levels will have you know greater propensity to high High blood pressure, as well as uh, plaque, and uh, and ADMA gives you some some uh, insight into issues related to the the nit nitric oxide. Wow, that's great! You know what I love about doing this podcast and and speaking to experts like yourself is you drop these nuggets of wisdom that I've never even heard of some of those tests. So that's fascinating. Now the ADMA and the oxidative stress test. Are those available? Are those like standard labs that one would get along with their other blood work, or do you send those out to a specific, like a specialty lab? Yeah, those uh, those labs I the labs I just mentioned they're all available through your you know routine your uh, 
you know, typical labs that, uh, you know, Quest, LabCorp, et cetera, okay. be able wow. to, to get those through, through, through them. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and you mentioned nitrous oxide and, uh, or nitric oxide, right? Is it nitric or nitrous? Which one? The nitric is, is that the one you're testing for? Nitrous is what you get at the dentist, right? Is that the same thing? They're, they're related. They're, they're, there's a, a number of how many, um, oh, you know, O's or electrons there are, but nitric oxide is the, is the substance in the, in the body that is uh, critically important for, um, as an antioxidant, um, and, uh, and also a re relaxant relaxes the blood vessels. That, that's really, um, you know, it's, it's a critical factor in what we call endothelial dis, uh, cell dysfunction. And the endothelial cells line the blood vessels and, and when they become, um, impaired, in producing um, nitric oxide, that's when you begin to, to develop uh, endothelial cell dysfunction, and that 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 occurs before any plaque arises. The first thing that goes wrong is is the uh, uh, endothelial dysfunction. And so, in other words, if you if you're able to maintain healthy endothelial cells, um, good levels of nitric oxide. You will you won't get to that point of developing developing plaque, um, and we're we're learning more and more about that. And uh, there's also another um, um, in, another piece of information to to keep in mind is is what again we're uh, it's just uh, more recently over the last uh, year or two it's it's come more to the uh, more to the forefront in the integrative medicine uh, field is the idea of this, of the glycocalyx. Okay. And that is actually a, a um, gel-like layer that lines the endothelial cells. And we're finding, it's being found that even before you get endothelial cell dysfunction, you get degradation of this protective layer of the, of the endothelial cells. And so, um, um, it's all. It's important to to um, you know to have good healthy levels of nitric oxide in, in, yeah. in the system. And so, how can we get more levels of nitric oxide? I I've read that sunlight is one of them. Um, and are there other ways people can do that if they can't get in sunlight? Uh, what do you suggest to people who have low levels of it? You know, so it's, let me be clear, it's not something that nitric oxide itself that is uh, um, directly measured. Um, there's tests that can measure uh, the, the health of the endothelium. So, so we, we know we get a sense of the levels through um, uh, indirectly through other kinds of, of testing. Um, I just wanted to make, make, make that clear. Yes, um, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, and the ADMA is something is a um, a substance that reduces the um, uh, high levels of that impairs the conversion of arginine to nitric oxide. How do how do we how do we uh, form nitric oxide in the body? We form it from arginine, which is an amino acid in the body. 
But if there's high levels of ADMA in the body, you're not going to the arginine is not going to it blocks the conversion of arginine to nitric oxide. So one way, so aside from the healthy lifestyle measures, you know, diet, exercise, yeah, you know, that that will you know help help you achieve a healthy nitric oxide levels. Um, um, you also want to uh, you know um, have good levels, you know, of arginine in, um, in, in the blood. And also you want to be able to reduce oxidative stress in the body because the more oxidative stress you have, the more nitric oxide you're going to be using up. And, and so, um, so those are ways to that, you know, if, if one is having evidence of, of, uh, of uh, reduced nitric oxide, and one of the big manifestations of that is is high blood pressure, for instance. Um, uh, that's that's uh, you know uh, one of the major causes of that is is you know reduced nitric oxide levels. Um, you'd 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 want to uh, if you have evidence of that, you want to take measures to increase the the nitric oxide levels through through various nutritional means and and healthy lifestyle matters. Right. And finding out if there's oxidative stress, what's causing that. Right. Um, you know, you, yeah, you hit on, on high blood pressure, hypertension, and you know, that's a big one in America. So do you suspect that that could be an underlying issue with, I know we can't diagnose the, the mass population. And I'm, I would never ask you to do that, but do you think that's a factor in why there's so much hypertension in our culture today? Because it just seems like it's, it seems like everybody and their brother has hypertension. Do you think it's linked to that? Yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely um, linked to that as well as other, other factors. And that's where, that's where stress comes into the picture. Um, I was recently um, visiting my uh, 94 year old mom in, um, in Las Vegas last last month, and uh, she had just come um, come out of the hospital um, because she was having some uh, uh, stomach discomfort and indigestion. So she went to the hospital uh, because of that, and she was found. It was found that her blood pressure was in the two hundreds, and uh, so you know they luckily they. Um, Got it under control, and she was discharged the next day. And when I went to see her in her home, and I took her blood pressure, it was in the one, uh, one set. It was one seventy. I said, "Mom, do me a favor. Um, close your eyes, and count your breaths. Notice the notice the notice your breath coming into your body and out of the body all on its own, and count your breaths up to twenty. She did that. I took her blood pressure. It went down 30, 30 points. Wow. Just from relaxing in that way. And, uh, and I've been uh, monitoring, having her monitor it in that way, making sure she does that before checking it. And, yeah. and the blood pressures have been very, very good lately just from that relaxation, just from activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Versus yeah. the sympathetic nervous system, which causes constriction of the blood vessel. So I think, you know, lifestyle factors and um, 
um, you know, uh, are very important in um, in uh, causing you know elevated blood pressure. Yeah, and and how much would health metrics change in this country if more people just stopped and did some breathing? <laughs> I mean, it sounds overly simple, but clearly it's effective. It it clearly is. It clearly is. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen it over, over and over again. That that simple measure is to just slow down and just pay attention to the breath, and uh, it, it can really it could make a huge difference if people um, practiced it and practiced, practiced it in the in the right way. Um, I think. Uh, there's a lot. I, I mean, the breath is is really paying attention to the breath. Is is really can be a huge a huge uh, can significantly cut down our healthcare costs if if more and more people paid attention to their own own breath and they and they yeah. and they did it in in a um, skillful way in, in the uh, I uh, I know that there are having a good understanding on, on how to practice that correctly is, is very important because people are just told to uh, breathe. Next time that happens to you, just breathe. And that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, yes, I just breathed, but nothing happened. But, but uh, if, you, if you were able to skillfully um, attend to the breath, I think it would make a, a, a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, talk to that person who has two parents who have had chronic heart disease. Um, you know, there's obviously hereditary factors, but if, if one's parents, either the mom or dad or both, or there's just a family history of different forms of heart disease, is that an automatic death sentence for an individual? Can we offset some of those hereditary factors by lifestyle changes, or are we destined to go down the same path? What is your thought on that? Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, one is definitely not destined to go down that same path. And it's just been, you know, the understanding there is that, you know, one might have the genes, but it's the, it's the epigenetics, it's the lifestyle, it's the behaviors that turn on, that uh, may or may not turn on that gene. Um, and that, and that doesn't, you know, there are, you know, certain genetic, genetic, um, conditions that, you know, that, that doesn't apply to, but that's the overwhelming minority of genetic, genetic, um, uh, diseases. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, the, the kind of case that you, um, presented, um, one through, healthy lifestyles, you'll activate the health promoting genes mm -hmm. through unhealthy lifestyle. You'll activate the, the unhealthy genes. So, so what, how you behave, how you interact with your genetic makeup determines on whether, whether those, um, those genes are, um, those, um, um, high risk genes are activated or not. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about nutraceuticals. I don't know how much you use those in your practice. There's a ton of there's a ton of stuff out there that 
seems to have cardiovascular benefits, things like CoQ10, uh, taurine, magnesium is a big one. How do you feel about those? Do you do you find yourself um, giving, you know, uh, suggesting, recommending patients use those for different conditions? Is there, I'm asking a lot of questions here, but I guess the main one I'm trying to get to is what can people take that is helpful in a preventative measure as far as different things? Like, you know, I keep reading CoQ10 levels drop as we age. We make less CoQ10 as we get older. Are there different things we can take, you know, off the supplement rack that can help us maintain heart health as we age? Do you think that's a factor at all? Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, definitely, um, um, recommendations concerning, um, nutraceuticals are a, a big part of, uh, the, my, my practice, uh, you know, but I definitely emphasize, you know, food, food first in terms of, uh, getting the, the nutrients one, one, uh, one requires, um, so it's um it's really a you know so you know basically I, I think uh it, it really each individual is is different so if you're you know struggling with a, a particular issue um say if there's an, an energy issue or or blood pressure issue or stress issue that will kind of direct what what kinds of uh supplements you know i i might recommend would be would be useful but there's no like one recommendation fits all um you know i would say certainly you know it's not a bad idea to take a, a multivitamin uh to ensure you're getting you know a sufficient amount of nutrients vitamin d deficiency is hugely prevalent and uh and that's very important for you know um for immune system health um and, um, you know, I, again, fish oil is also healthy, having healthy, um, you know, fatty acid levels in the blood is, is, is also, you know, usually important. So those, the three I just mentioned would kind of be, you know, ones that I, I would think would not be a bad idea for anyone to, uh, you know, to, to use if they want to, um, uh, you know, uh, increase their foundational health status. Okay. Now, fish oil, have you seen diagnostics that establish the usefulness of fish oil? Is it better to eat fish three times a week? Does fish oil get more of those essential fatty acids, the omega-3s, into our system faster than just eating fish? Have you ever done a comparison of that? What's your experience with fish oil? Yeah, so it's um, you know definitely you know the the eating the the fish that are high in omega three fatty acids is is important and and again I I um, I rely on test on test results and so if someone is um, you know is uh, implementing that recommendation if they're doing things you know um, in their diet um, for foundational health and um, I do testing, and I see that they they have a um, unhealthy um, level of omega three fatty acids, and their 
their ratio of uh, anti-inflammatory anti to inflammatory fatty acids is is low, is high risk. I would, you know, I would um, recommend that they um, add some fish oil to their to their regimen. Okay. Talk about congestive heart failure. Um, is that reversible? Is it preventable? What's been your experience with that condition? So I'll take the the, uh, the latter first. Uh, you know, it's um, in case in um, in some cases it is it is reversible um, if there's an inciting agent such as a uh, a virus or a toxin. Um, it could be reversed um, if the cause is uh, is too much iron, so a condition uh, known as hemochromatosis. If you uh, treat that, if you remove the the uh, the the iron, you know that could that that will reverse. Um, if the if the cause is reduced blood supply to the heart, and you're able to increase the blood supply to the heart, and that can can reverse it. So definitely heart. Um, Heart failure can be um, um, can be reversible. Um, can it be prevented? Sure, sure. If you're able to prevent, um, you know, the most common cause of heart failure is would be um, you know blockages uh, and uh, and also hypertension. And there's um, and if you're able to um, prevent blockages and you know and um, you know, maintain a normal blood pressure. You'll you will be able to prevent hypertension from from occurring. And something that's important for your audience to uh, you know be aware of also is uh, is that there's two different types of two two major different types of heart failure. And one is due to the the heart as a as a pump being weak, having a weak pump, and the other kind is is having a stiff pump so one is the pump is not able to pump strongly enough and the other one is 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 a problem when the heart fills up with blood it's too stiff and so each of those increase the pressure inside of the heart and that gets backed up to the lungs and causes breathing problems so um, both of those ish both of those problems are 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 very big, big problems um, in the aging population and becoming more. And the predictions are that it's going to, you know, become more and more of a, a problem in the years to come. And and preventative measures can help help offset that in both types. Have you found? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the um, the the redu reduced heart function one and most common cause of that is is uh, blockages um, to the blood vessels and the most common cause in the uh, stiff one the the stiff uh, heart is uh, is you know high high blood pressure so you know each of those if you're able to uh, um, you know effectively prevent you will you know prevent the those uh, the symptoms that the you know structural changes from occurring in the heart that will yep. eventually cause the symptoms. Yeah. Do you have elderly patients that see you that have normal blood pressure? Can we keep normal blood pressure into our 
twilight years or does it go up as we age? What have you found to be the case? Yeah, I have uh, um, uh, many, many elderly patients with normal blood pressure. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so high blood pressure is definitely not in- inevitable with, with age. And again, that depends on the, uh, you know, if we're, if we're keeping the uh, healthy uh, uh, nitric oxide levels, reducing stress, exercising, uh, definitely hypertension is not, not, not a given as, as one ages. Well, that, that's, that's great to know. I mean, that's, that's very encouraging. And, and on that note, I think our time is running, running out. So we're going to have to wrap up, but Dr. Schwartz, this has been fascinating and insightful and, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your clinical experience and, and the different things you've researched and tried over the years and we'd love to have you back if you if you would ever come back because this was fantastic. Great, great, Mike. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and um, I'm happy to come back. So just uh, just give me a buzz, and we'll uh, we'll hook up again. Absolutely, that's great. Well, that will do it for this edition of the Natural Man Podcast. My name is Mike C, and until next time, stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.